Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Today's case contains graphic details of murder, sexual assault, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Tucked back in the attic of your thoughts, where spiderwebs cling to every crevice, of the things we know and those that we've forgotten, you will find a small candle. That candle is lit, shining brightly in order to illuminate the darkness of every corner of your mind. Luckily for you, and everyone around you, That candle represents your humanity. The very thing that gives us empathy, kindness, and morality. We as humans all have a good amount of humanity nestled into our cracks, expanding its way out when you hear an animal cry out for its mother, or when a small child falls and scrapes a knee, or when we see the people we love hurting and we give them a hug. We're human. We feel empathy for others. We are capable of emotions such as love and pain. Yet every once in a while, you meet a person who is devoid of these emotions. There are monsters among us, hiding within our midst. Monsters who don't have that candle lit in that small part of their brain. They only see the darkness in the world, and in their minds, not the light. Israel Keys was one of those monsters. The ones who feel nothing but the unquenchable desire to hurt others. As we went on our journey through Israel Keyes' life and his crimes that are known, we saw the bad and the ugly, those dark thoughts he acted upon time and time again. Unfortunately, this tale does not get any more pleasing. It is darkness and a scorn for humanity up until its conclusion. On our last episode, we left off as Israel Keyes was brought into custody a place where we all thought this monster would live out his days, no exit in sight. Despite investigators' hopes of closure for every unknown victim and their families, Keyes would take his own life, and with his life, he took away one more thing from all of his victims, their chance at justice. He would leave a trail of breadcrumbs behind for the investigators, breadcrumbs that were not only incredibly hard to decipher, but also soaked with Israel Keyes' blood, a crimson red ink that would be burned into investigators' minds for years to come. Was this blood a clue? Does it tell us where the victims are? How many are there truly? These are all questions that only one man knew, and he took those answers with him to his grave. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to grab our candles and hold our light high as we venture forth once more into the darkness that is the mind of Israel Keys, for one final time. March 13, 2012 would finally introduce investigators to the man who had abducted 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. At first glance, Keyes seemed like a regular guy, not someone who had such a dark and ugly history. Yet sitting in his vehicle was the cell phone and debit card of the then-missing 18-year-old girl from Alaska. They would also find a piece of gray t-shirt Keyes had cut out to make a face mask. Keyes also had a map in the car that highlighted his routes through California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Texas Highway Patrol had pulled Keyes over for a traffic violation, 
but they'd been watching his car as it matched the description of a vehicle that was listed in the bolo put out by the Alaska State Police. Once pulled over, they promptly arrested Keyes in Lufkin, Texas. FBI agents Monique Dahl and Jeff Bell would promptly go to Texas and try and get Israel Keyes to talk more about just what had happened to Samantha Koenig. During that conversation, he told Monique Dahl, quote, I can't help you, unquote, after she asked him if he had a story to tell. Keyes was then extradited back to Alaska in order to face extensive questioning by the FBI regarding the disappearance of Samantha Koenig. Once he was in the custody of Alaska investigators, Keyes realized it was in his best interest to start talking, and so he did. Investigators had no idea just who they had in custody, but soon they would see the monster who would abduct an innocent 18-year-old girl for what he truly was. They would see the darkness that resided in the soul of Israel Keyes, a darkness that would allow Keyes to kill time and time again. The monster was unmasked, Investigators now had the identity of the man who abducted 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. But now they had the overwhelming task of finding out where Keyes had hid the teen, and just who this man in question truly was. Keyes would go on to tell investigators just what had happened to the 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. What they didn't expect was for Israel Keyes to confess to killing more people outside of Samantha Koenig. On April 6, 2012, Israel Keyes would sit with investigators for a fourth interrogation. In this interrogation, it was explicitly stated that Keyes would not speak of Samantha Koenig's murder, but instead he would discuss the other murders he had conducted. It was at this interrogation on April 6th where Israel Keyes confessed to murdering a couple from Vermont, Bill and Lorraine Courier. Keyes would tell investigators when asked for information regarding just one of his victims. Israel would tell them, quote, I'll give you two, unquote. Investigators would then provide Israel Keyes with a laptop in order to search for the exact location of the barn where he had murdered the Vermont couple. It took Israel Keyes over 30 minutes to find the actual abandoned barn where he told investigators he believed that's where he had left the courier's remains. This is when the Alaska State Police would reach out to the Essex Police in Vermont. They had confirmed that a couple was indeed missing by the name of Bill and Lorraine Courier, and had been missing since June 8, 2011. Keyes would go on to reference his personal laptop in this interrogation, and how he had used a laptop to track the cases for his previous victims over the years. He would also tell investigators that they should look at the homemade anchor on his boat, as that may be of interest to them regarding his crimes. It is unknown if anything related to his murders was found on the anchor at this time. According to the FOIA report on page 70 of part 5 of the eight-part FOIA report, investigators stated that, quote, on the above facts, in my training and experience, I submit that there is probable cause to believe that Keyes had committed multiple kidnappings, carjacking, and homicides that he incorporates travel into his homicides as an effective countermeasure to law enforcement detection, and that he subsequently follows media and missing persons reports relating to his offenses, unquote. The report goes on to state, quote, I further submit that given the information above, there is probable cause to believe that this pattern has been ongoing during the 14-year period beginning in 1998 and continuing through 2012, unquote. It would also come to light during these interrogations of Israel Keyes that not only did he bury kill kits, 
but he would also take items such as jewelry from his victims, as well as other items from the crime scene, and frequently place these items in the caches as well. Israel Keyes would tell investigators that his desire was not for freedom. He knew that wasn't going to be an option. Instead, he wanted the death penalty. Keyes' interrogation videos depict a man who clearly states that he did not want the trial and his incarceration to drag on. Israel Keyes would agree to give details regarding the three homicides of Samantha Koenig, Bill Courier, and Lorraine Courier if investigators would refrain from the media getting wind of Israel Keyes' identity as he wanted to keep his crimes out of the public eye. He didn't want his daughter to find out about what he had done and who he was. Investigators agreed to try and not share his name, if possible. Keyes would then begin to give the details of those three murders and agreed he'd tell about the others over time. The conversations with Israel would become halted, however, after his desire for anonymity was breached. Investigators couldn't withhold their suspect's identity from the public for long. Inevitably, rumors would begin to surface in Vermont between an Alaskan killer and the missing courier couple. Local news agencies in Vermont reported early on in the Keyes investigation that there was a prime suspect. Keyes would get wind of the media frenzy, and he would accuse the investigators of going back on their agreement. Keyes would begin to stop sharing nearly as much information with investigators about his crimes after that point. On May 24, 2012, almost two months after Keyes' confessions on the murders of the Couriers and Samantha Koenig, Israel Keyes would be sitting in trial listening to his defense attorney, Jacqueline Walsh, state their case for attempting to seek a trial date for two years out. Keyes would lunge over the railing in the courtroom. He would pass four men who had been positioned around him to keep him secure. Within seconds, he was tackled and forced to the ground. Keyes would fight the guards trying to get free. They would end up using a taser to subdue him. Investigators would discover that Israel Keyes had managed to break his leg irons, and that was what had enabled him to try and make his escape. It is unknown how it wasn't spotted that Keyes was trying to escape his bounds before he actually succeeded in removing them. Keyes would also undergo a psychiatric evaluation while in police custody. He was found to be sane, but had antisocial tendencies, as well as tested on the high end of the intelligence spectrum. Keyes was one of the rare serial killers who tested at above-average intelligence. Keyes felt little to no remorse for his crimes. He would go on to tell investigators that, quote, The things I've done, I don't feel bad about them. I did them for myself. It's better for me to keep them to myself. They're mine, unquote. Keyes would not name any more of his victims outside of the Couriers and Samantha Koenig, he would tell investigators that he had killed less than a dozen people. Investigators settled on his victim count being 11 people, based on the information he had given them during their time interviewing him. Keyes would tell investigators that he wanted to have a, quote, retirement plan, unquote, that was based around building his very own dungeon in his home. Maybe this fantasy was what led him to abduct and murder someone so close to his home. Keyes would also alert investigators to a cache of his that lay along Eagle River in Alaska. He explained that this cache had body disposal tools within it. Quote, I only left that stuff there because I was planning on using it eventually. I don't like to litter. Unquote. Keyes made it very clear to investigators and lawyers that he had no long-term plans to stay in jail. 
quote, how long am I willing to sit in jail, unquote. Words that show just how much of a controlling personality Israel Keyes had. He wanted to be in control of all aspects of his life, including his incarceration and even his own death. It was said that even investigators began to grow impatient with Keyes dragging out facts and details regarding his murders. He would give bare minimum information, almost seeming to enjoy holding the carrot out to the investigators to see if they would bite. According to FBI agent Steve Payne, at one point in October of 2012, he would tell Keyes that, quote, the ground is freezing, Israel. If you want to be involved in helping us, it was 18 degrees outside yesterday. We don't have a lot of time to play with, and it's a long, cold winter, unquote. On December 1st, 2012, Israel Keyes would decide that he no longer wanted to wait on others to decide his fate. Keyes did not share his cell with any other inmates. Around 9.30 p.m., Israel Keyes was left alone in his cell. No guards were watching him, and his cell was darker than others around him. That night, Israel Keyes would pull out a razor blade that he had coerced a guard to give him earlier that week. Keyes had embedded the razor blade into the top of a pencil and hidden the pencil razor under his mattress. It wasn't the first time Keyes had created a homemade device in prison. A few months prior, he had made a pick-type device in order to try and open his shackles. The device consisted of a paperclip and dental floss. By prison standards, Keyes was listed as a max-max inmate. This meant that Keyes went nowhere without supervision and being shackled. He was subjected to the highest security precautions. A few weeks prior, Israel Keyes had hidden 11 images, all drawn out in his own blood under his bed. They had been found and confiscated by authorities. The images depicted 11 skulls, all with upside-down crosses on the skulls' foreheads. One image depicted a pentagram with a goat head in the middle of it. The symbol is known in Satanism as the Sigil of Baphomet. It is the official insignia of the Church of Satan. One of the skulls held the words, quote, We are one, unquote, scrawled across the bottom of the image in Keyes' own blood. Keyes had also been put on suicide watch a few weeks previously. There was growing concern over his declining mental health while in prison, and the prison felt Keyes was a high risk to himself. After some time on suicide watch, the prison deemed Keyes no longer a threat to himself and would end the suicide watch. On December 1st, 2012, the guard on duty, Lauren Jacobson, would take his evening break at 10.05 p.m. The break was mandatory, and so Jacobson would switch out with the other guard on duty, who was to relieve him from his watch. At 10.12 p.m., the video surveillance from the prison would show Israel Keyes getting into his bed, seemingly going to sleep for the night. However, Keyes was seen moving around on his bed until 10.24 p.m. Keyes stops moving immediately after 10.24 p.m. Lauren Jacobson would return from his evening break not long after Keyes stopped moving around in his bed. It was about 10.52 when Jacobson clocked back in and took over his watch duties once more. Israel Keyes seemed to have settled down in his room as he made no further noise that night. Keyes had been known to cover himself fully in his blanket. When Jacobson and the other guards did their rounds for the night, they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary in Keyes' cell. All seemed to be normal for the prison guards that night. What Jacobson was unaware of at the time was that Israel Keyes had decided to control his fate once more 
and he had taken his own life right then and there in the prison bed of his cell. He had made a makeshift noose from his bed sheets, and he had slit his wrist while under his blanket. Unbeknownst to Jacobson, another guard had given Israel Keyes a razor blade, mistakenly assuming that Keyes was allowed to have potentially dangerous items, such as razors, available to him. After obtaining the razor, Keyes had embedded it into that pencil in order to create a straight razor-type device. Keyes had decided he didn't want to wait on jury deliberations and sentencing hearings. Instead, he just wanted the whole ordeal to be finished. With the dim light in the cell, Jacobson couldn't see the blood beginning to spread across the jail cell floor in Israel's keep. It wasn't until the guard's shift change, which happened after 6 a.m., that a day shift officer noticed something wasn't right in the cell that housed Max Max inmate Israel Keyes. What they found was the lifeless and bloodied remains of one of the worst serial killers in modern history. According to the arbitrator's report, Keyes had been dead for a few hours and his body was, quote, pale and in rigor, unquote. Jacobson was later fired due to Keyes' committing suicide on his watch. Tensions were flaring over the fact that Jacobson was on his mandatory break during Keyes' last movements. Despite the break being mandatory, and Keyes killing himself while under the supervision of a completely different guard at the time of his death. There is the argument that Keyes should never have left Suicide Watch due to his recent behavior and red flags. One other thing that was noted was that Keyes' cell was dimly lit, making it next to impossible to have a clear line of sight on the prisoner who dwelled within the cell. Jacobson would later sue the prison for wrongful termination, as responsibility for Israel Keyes' actions that night did not solely lie with just Jacobson, but inadequate and lenient monitoring that occurred throughout the entirety of the prison. As the blood drained from the body of Israel Keyes, so did the answers to the other unidentified victims' identities. Keyes left behind a suicide note. It was placed beneath his body so that authorities would find it when they finally came in and realized just what had happened. The suicide note would contain a cryptic ode to murder. Even in his final moments, Israel Keys kept his secrets close. We have asked our friend Kevin over at the jury room to read the note in its entirety. The contents of the note are somewhat graphic, and so we want to state that listener discretion is advised. Where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride... The night is still young. Streetlights push back the black, neat rows. Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stones, bodies molder below. Turn away quick. Bob your head to the seat. As straight through the stop sign you roll, loaded truck with lights off slams into you broadside. Your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free. You loved living your life. Fate had its own scheme crushed. Like a bug, you still die. Soon, now, you will join those ranks of dead, or your ashes the wind will soon blow. Family and friends will shed a few tears. Pretend it's off to heaven you go. But the reality is, you were just bones and meat. And with your brain, died also your soul. Send the dying to wait for their death 
in the comfort of retirement homes. Quietly, quickly, say it's for the best. It's for the best. It's best for you, so their fate will not know. Turn a blind eye back to the screen. Soak in your reality shows. Stand in front of your mirror and you preen. In a plastic castle you call home. Land of the free. Land of the lie. Land of the scheme. Americanize. Consume what you don't need. Stars you idolize. Pursue what you admit is a dream. Then it's American die. Get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on the clock and sit on your ass, playing stupid-ass games on your phone. Paper on the wall says you got smarts. The test you think told you so, but you would still crawl like a vermin you are. Once your precious power grid's blown. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. Now that I have held you tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ear so you know that it's true. You are my love at first sight, and though you're scared to be near me, my words penetrate your thoughts now in an intimate prelude. I looked in your eyes. They were so dark, warm and trusting, as though you had not a worry or care. The more guileless the game, the better potential to fill up those pools with your fear. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait. The sun shone through highlights of red. What color, I wonder? And how straight will it turn plastered back with the sweat of your blood? Your wet lips were a promise of a secret, unspoken, nervous laugh as it burst like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up. My hand now on your shoulder. Your eyes? Forget the lady called Luck. She does not abide near me, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. Would that I could keep you. Let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake. My pretty captive butterfly colorful wings, my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis emerge, my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open my trembling flower, or your petals I will crush. Israel Keyes' final words do not seem to hold any clues into the actual identities of the eight other victims. 
At this time, no other murders have been formally linked to Israel Keys, at least none that have been released to the public. Samantha Koenig's father, James, would become an advocate for victims, creating the nonprofit organization Seeking Alaska's Missing, nicknamed Sam, after his daughter Samantha. The group still exists to this day. Deborah Feldman's name still remains linked with the Alaskan serial killer, but like many of his victims, her remains have also never been found. It has been 12 years since Deborah Feldman went missing from her hometown of Hackensack, New Jersey. Bill and Lorraine Courier's remains have also never been found. In June of 2021, Vermont mourned as the 10-year anniversary of their abduction and murders came to pass. Bill Courier's mother was once asked how she and her family felt about Israel Keyes taking his own life. In an email to the Burlington Free Press, she wrote, quote, So many thoughts have swirled through my mind, but at this moment, I'm feeling that this probably is the best thing that could have happened. He will kill no more, and we all will be saved from months, if not years, of trials and appeals. Importantly, too, facts will unequivocally support that there is nothing Bill and Lorraine did that led to their victimization. They truly were the loving, family-oriented people we've always held them out to be. Victims of a totally random act of a deranged individual. I hope with all my heart that the family and friends of Samantha Koenig feel the same and pray that peace will come eventually to all of us. Unquote. Our hearts go out to the families of Deborah Feldman, Bill and Lorraine Courier, and Samantha Koenig. They all mattered. They all deserved so much more time on this earth than what they got. They all were brave in the face of true evil. They all fought valiantly for their lives, and their families are in our hearts. We can only hope that as time goes past and more evidence is examined, other victims' families of Israel Keys will soon gain closure on what happened to their missing or murdered loved ones. It has been 10 years since Israel Keys committed suicide. Let us all hope that it does not take another 10 years before we know the names of all 11 innocent victims of serial killer Israel Keys. And so we conclude our series on the monster in our midst, serial killer Israel Keys. Thank you for coming on this journey with us over these last few episodes. We will have our final thoughts next week in the final CTN breakdown on Israel Keys. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, there is help. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They are open 24-7 and provide free and confidential support. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that number is 1-800-273-8255. And if you like this episode or any of our others, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. You can check out crimetimenerds.com for connecting with us via our socials and for other show updates. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.